Hello everyone and welcome to the Fastat Podcast. Today I'm going to be continuing off last week's podcast by making the case for pure Maimonideanism. Now this is um, hitting the nail straight on the head. This is no special event or holiday or uh, um, incident that triggered this podcast, but this is a fundamental claim that I often make to my friends and family and students and I'm going to make this claim here as well, and I'm going to try to back it up. I'm going to divide it into two parts. Part one is why Maimonideanism? Why be a Maimonidean at all? Why limit yourself to just one position or one approach? Why not integrate various other interesting approaches to the world and to Judaism? And in the second part of the podcast, it's going to be how come so few notable rabbis uh, of late and of late antiquity um, have taken up this position and um, which rabbis nevertheless have, okay? So to, to start with, I will argue that when I say Maimonideanism, I don't mean to look at Maimonides as a exclusive authority that we kind of follow because of his greatness or because we worship his charismatic uh, personality or approach, even though he's definitely charismatic and there's definitely a lot of content there and his personality is kind of larger than life, but that's not why we follow it or we advocate following it. The reason we advocate following Maimonideanism is because we consider the Maimonidean approach to be the most authentic and most noble expression of the Jewish tradition. And it's a way of life that best represents and best expresses the tradition of our ancestors, and straying from it has never served us well. So it's a historical argument, and it's also an argument for authenticity. Um... Now, it's a bold claim, and I'm going to back it up as best I can. Firstly, you would notice, any of you, the listener, will easily notice that the most often quoted Jewish thinker is Maimonides. Rambam is appropriated by literally every movement within Judaism, right? It doesn't make a difference which denomination, Orthodox, and all of its subsects of Orthodox Judaism, almost every single one of them claims to follow Maimonides. Whether it's Chabad, whether it's other Hasidic movements, whether it's the modern Orthodox, um, the, uh, the academic Yeshiva University, they all look at Maimonides as their main inspiration. In fact, almost any Lithuanian Yeshiva you go to, when they've taken over the yeshiva world, rabbinic academies or Talmudic academies, the focal point of almost every major class is explaining the words of Maimonides, explaining how the Talmudic uh, uh, system is like fits with Maimonidean view. It's always answering some sort of con- uh, seeming inter- internal contradiction with Maimonides. It's almost as if they all tacitly admit that their entire Judaism is an expression of Maimonides' view. So, what I'm saying, while it may sound controversial, it's kind of inherent in Orthodox Judaism as you see it. And as I mentioned, not just Orthodox Judaism. 
Also, if you look at other denominations, you know, look at conservative Judaism, they also will claim Maimonides as their own and say that they're being current and that they're, you know, academic and they're modern and so was Maimonides and they claim him as an authority, as an inspiration and claim to be following in his footsteps, albeit in a different way, right? But they again... Um, uh, use this uh, towering personality and ideology of, and, and legal viewpoints of, of Maimonides as a backup for their iteration of Judaism. Right? Um, the same can be said about, about Reform Judaism, right? when they talk about b- being current, and they talk about uh, exp- you know, expressing Judaism the way they do. Also, very much... Um, very much uh, uh, an expression of what they think is a true Maimonidean philosophical approach. I won't get into details of all of these, but I'm sure you can recognize this as a phenomenon, right? And every part of any part of the Jewish world that you partake in, there is an obsession with kind of fitting their worldview with Maimonides and finding a Maimonidean source for almost anything they do. And um, I'm just going to point out that subconsciously, this already demonstrates that deep down, most of us know that the ultimate uh, authority in Judaism in the last few thousand years is Maimonides himself. Now, this may sound sycophantic, it may sound uh, dramatic, but there's a Talmudic source for this as well. Uh, yes, uh, you heard me right, there's a Talmudic source for considering Maimonides to be the ultimate source for for a law, law, law for halacha and for knowing how to keep the Torah, okay, and bear with me and you'll see what I mean. The Talmud in Horayot and a few other places talks about the requirements needed for being a chacham, for being a member of the Bedin Hagadol, for being basically an authority in the Torah and the Torah Shabbal Peh, both the written and the oral law. And what is that? One must be gamir or severe. They have to be, the word gamir, and we'll see what that means, and the word savir for the, of, you know, the entire Torah. Now, what does it mean to be gamir v'savir v'kola Commonly explained, gamir means to know all the content. So you, you know the, the text, you study the Talmud, you can be tested on it, right? you know, the, you, you, know, you understand, you have a rudimentary understanding of the text, and you can quote it. You've mastered it. And what's severe? Severe means you understand it in a deep way. You understand it in a way where you can restate it in your own words. Gamir v'savir b'kol ha-Torah kula is basically a requirement for being on the Bedin HaGadol. Right? Now, how many, how many people, or what they call hara'u'i l'hora'ah, worthy of teaching, worthy of, being, of following their legal rulings, right? Now, Maimonides is the only individual in the last 2,000 years who has demonstrated, without a shadow of a doubt, of being gamir v'savir v'kola terakula. And how? The work of the Mishneh Torah. In case you guys don't know, Mishneh Torah, otherwise known as Yad HaChazakah, is a work that encompasses a, a short and very uh, condensed summary of the entire Torah Shabal Peh, of the entire rabbinic tradition. He restated it in an extremely modern language. He didn't use the tractates of the Talmud, but he, he divided it by subject and stuck to the subject of each uh, legal ruling. 
legal tractate and divided it into individual rulings. They're numbered, they're chapter and verse, easy to master, and it covers the conclusions of the entire Talmud. Now, he didn't provide sources for all of this, but he did two things. He left you hints as to what his sources were because he used the language of the Talmud, of the Talmudic conclusion, and in each of his, his, his rulings. So it's kind of wired in there. It's something that most of us don't know, notice. That's the subject of a different podcast, different class. We won't get into that right now. But he also did something else. He also left his work open. For, uh, anyone can, can read it and anyone can send him letters and he'll respond when he has time. And he's responded to hundreds of letters, many of which we still have available. And you can see how he defends his positions and shows that everything that he wrote was in fact the rabbinic uh, tradition, was in fact the Talmudic conclusion, and that's how he defends it. So he's demonstrated Gamir V'Savir B'Kola Tarakula. Oddly enough, there has not been another rabbi or another Jewish authority in the history of the Jewish nation that has demonstrated this kind of mastery. And therefore, if you don't have information about... Um, uh, about the, the, the past of these rabbis, you can only assume a safely proven that Maimonides is that Gamir V'savir B'kola So therefore, if you followed, if you were simple about this and you just followed Maimonides' rulings, you would be in line with a Talmudic approach of choosing a teacher, a master, who's, who's mastered the, the, the material. And anyone else who claims to have mastered the material may or may not have actually mastered it. But for sure, Maimonides has. Now, this is a bold claim. I'm just going to defend some of the arguments that many of you would either make or hear against this claim. Right? Look at, for example, the famous uh, Rabbi Shalomo Ishaki, who preceded Maimonides a bit. He wrote a commentary on most of the Babylonian Talmud, though not all of it. His commentary demonstrates Gamir on the part that he managed to comment on. Does not demonstrate severe. So he may have been severe, but we don't have those extensive response of him restating the entire law. We only have a commentary on each part of the text, and that does not demonstrate really severe. It may or may not demonstrate severe, but I don't need to get into that, because it doesn't cover the entire Talmud. There are tractates that are missing uh, Rashi's commentary, okay? Um, you know, many people have legends that they have a rabbi who, you know, mastered the whole Babylonian Talmud by heart and he can stick a needle or a nail into the book and tell you in which letter it goes. And All that may or may not be true. I'm not doubting them. But what I am saying is there's no proof. And since there's no proof, they can't make the claim of Gamir V'Savir B'Kola Tarakula. And if you follow this with all of the, you know, 2,000 years of rabbinic tradition, there's not one other individual that has demonstrated this kind of mastery. And hence, if you were just followed Maimonides, you'd be following the Talmud instructions, the Talmudic instruction of uh, following someone who's Gamir V'savir B'kola Turakula. Right? So, that's the second thing. Now, uh, now what, what, what else does, uh, what other argument do I have for this? The other argument is that um, it is the, the simplest and the easiest uh, solution to the problem of interpretation of Jewish law, Jewish ethics, and Jewish philosophy. Insofar 
has, if you opened up the Shulchan Aruch, it is way more complicated to understand the law you need to follow by using any of the other legal compendiums comp- composed by other great rabbis, right? Um, the scientific uh, uh, um, precision of the Hebrew of the Mishneh Torah, otherwise known as Yad HaChazakah, has never been matched by anyone. And the only reason we can't really utilize it fully is because we don't collectively follow it. And the reason we don't collectively follow it in my opinion, and the opinion of more and more people, is not uh, a legitimate uh, reason. Okay? Now, w- like, to- talking about how easy it is, just as an example, famous uh, poet, famous Zionist poet, Chaim Nachman Bialik, uh, made a statement once that his Hebrew is, is par excellence, bar none, the best Hebrew. He was very boastful about that, and he felt that he can imitate the language of any of the prophets, and you would think it's, you know, in the, in the language of Yirmiyahu, to speak in the language of Yishayahu, of Amos, and he mastered the, all the finer points of all of biblical Hebrew in all of its rich diversity. Now, whether that's true or not is irrelevant, but he's admitted that he could never imitate the Hebrew of Maimonides and the Mishneh Torah in how concise it is and in how he takes the most complex subjects, whether it's the laws of Shabbat or astronomical tables, and how he explains it in simple, easy-to-understand, uh, semi-Mishnahic Hebrew, okay? So it's not just mastery of the language, it's mastery of the, of the content and the ability to take extremely complex legal decisions that were put together by some of the most greatest legal minds of all time, and putting it together in beautiful, simple, easy to understand legal rulings that are succinct and um, available to everyone. A woman and a child who doesn't have much experience can read it and get a pretty good idea of what the law is. So this is another reason why it's superior. Now, I'm going to make another argument now about why not to follow Shulchan Aruch, specifically Sepharadim, but not just. Okay? The idea of the Shulchan Aruch as it was a great idea. It was a messianic idea. The concept was we're gonna we're gonna um, try to Rabbi Yosef Cairo, right, who preceded, who who came after Maimonides a few hundred years, and he had this idea that if you there's a problem that Jews are following different legal codes, right? The European Jews, Ashkenazim, were following the French Tosafist rabbinic school. Sephardic Jews were following Maimonides. Then you had Jews that were still following like ancient, more Geonic traditions, which was mostly similar to Maimonides, but not completely. And he felt that this rift was not healthy for a united nation. And he was 100% right about this, right? So he decided to write a, a compendium that would unite Ashkenaz and Sephardic Jews. And the way he did it was he, he, he wrote a, a legal work called the Shulchan Aruch, the set table, which was a triumvirate, where he took three main authorities, Maimonides representing Sephardica, um, he used Rabbeinu Asher, right, the Rosh, who was an Ashkenaz rabbi, uh, representing the Germanic French Tosafist school, and he used the uh, Al-Fasi, otherwise known as the Rif, to represent the more older Geonic tradition. And he did a triumvirate where 
two out of three, uh, if two out of three of these authorities um, held a certain position, that would be the position he went with. So this way, the idea was that each community would give a little, and each community would get a little, and we can have a united legal work. Now, um, Sephardic Jews have accepted this for the most part, right? Mostly accepted Shuhanaruch, even though without getting into too much excruciating detail, we can point out to dozens of examples of laws that Sephardim do not follow that are in Shuhanaruch, but I digress. At least the idea behind it, conceptually, they follow Shuhanaruch, right? Now, the argument they should follow Shuhan Aruch is was made so that they can be united with their European brethren. Did the Ashkenazim agree to follow the Shulchan Aruch? No, they did not. They have um, made additions to the Shulchan Aruch called the Mapa, the, the, the tablecloth on the table, set table. No, they, they came up with their own uh, changes where they've made additions to make it more comfortable, more in sync with the French Tosafist tradition. And Rabbi Moses Israelis of, of Warsaw, he was behind this um, work, and he agreed with Shulchan Aruch on many things, but on many things he disagreed, but the, the concept of unity has been broken. Ashkenazim do not follow Shulchan Aruch, they follow their own version of Shulchan Aruch, right? Now, my argument, and the argument of other Maimonideans in this, in this manner, are if, if we follow... The, what we consider the gold standard, the Rolls-Royce of halachic works, the Mishneh Torah. And we're being convinced to abandon that for unity. It's a big, big ask. That's a really big um, compromise for us. And we were willing to do it, and maybe we still are willing to do it. I personally wouldn't be happy, but I can hear the argument. I would begrudgingly be willing, maybe, even though I'm a fanatical Maimonidean, I maybe would be willing to follow something other than Maimonides. I say this, maybe, probably not, if it would really mean uniting with all my brothers. But at least I would, I would respect that as a reasonable request, and I would, have, I would honor that request and maybe try, right? But in this case... That request has been turned down by our European brothers. So we have no reason to follow the, the Shulchan Aruch. Again, for Sephardic people, we should revert back to following the Mishneh Torah. Now, again, the truth is that this should not be ethnic. I'm going to have another podcast about how ethnicity should not be a, a, at all a, a factor in Halakha. It's historically anachronistic. The halakha is decided by jurisdiction and not by ethnicity. So if you're ethnically Sephardic, but you live in a town that's Ashkenaz, you follow the rabbis of the local town. And if you're ethnically Ashkenaz and you live in a Sephardic town, you follow Sephardic halakha. It's really not, it's not supposed to be ethnic in any way. But, um, and I think that Ashkenazi Jews should be in today's world where none of the Jewish courts, the local courts, are legitimate Jewish courts. And that's another subject, why they're not legitimate, but for short, for today, they're not legitimate because they don't function as a bedin. They have many other bateidin they're competing with, and that's a prohibition. You can only have one bedin in the town, one court, and those, they don't have the authority of the bedin, therefore they don't have the authority to decide for the members of the community how to rule and what halakha to follow.
Hence, bringing us back to the conclusion that the best you can do is follow Talmudic uh, conclusive rules. And that would be, again, the best iteration of that, easiest one to follow, most reliable, admitted by everyone, again, is what? Maimonidean view. Right? Um, so that would be another argument why we should follow pure Maimonides. And this argument really should cover both Sephardic and Ashkenaz Jews. It's not something that um, is limited to only one ethnicity because, again, we are Jews. We're not defined by ethnicity. We're defined by we're one nation. And we don't look at our ethnic differences, um, should they even be there, I mean, should they actually be real ethnic differences, as a, uh, as a factor in deciding how we follow the law or which nation we're loyal to. We're loyal to our own nation, the Jews, the Jewish nation, and we're loyal to the Torah. And the Torah is decided by the Bedin HaGadol and the otherwise known as Sanhedrin. And the Talmud is the last iteration of that Sanhedrin. And the Maimonides is the last iteration of the summary of those laws for modern uh, ears, as it were. And there is no reason to follow anything else, because following other legal um, groups, other legal rulings, other authorities, is an invitation to endless confusion. Okay, And you can... Uh, recognize this confusion anytime you speak to a rabbi or go online and look up rabbinic opinions on anything they argue about literally everything the arguments are often divided by by ethnicity again if you go to a rabbi today and you ask him what's the halakha about uh, uh, something in your kitchen or something in your nida or it's not but the eruv the first thing they'll ask you is what ethnicity you are, which is absolutely ridiculous. It should not be a factor. Your ethnicity does not, does not in, in any way inform your obligation to follow the law. And if you want to follow the law, we, the nation of Israel, have received one law from Moses, which was the law of the Torah, and it was the interpretation of this Torah is given over to the Bedin HaGadol. Bedin HaGadol was not divided by, um, by ethnic groups, right? Um, you had a when when we don't have Bedin Agadol, you had a Bedin in Warsaw in Poland, and you had a Bedin in, in maybe in Alexandria in Egypt, but that was only because they were in separate countries, so they had separate Bedin, and maybe they saw things differently. If you lived in Alexandria, you followed the Alexandrian Bedin. You lived in in Warsaw, you followed the Polish Bedin, and that was fine. But there is no reason for a Polish person who moves to New York City, who moves to Jerusalem, who moves to Paris to gar- carry along his Polish tradition because there's no, there's no Polish Jew and there's no Egyptian Jew. There's Judean Jew from, from Eretz Israel, and that's where we come back. And even if we're temporarily not in Israel, we carry that, uh, that um, loyalty, that fealty, and we're loyal to the same Torah. All right? And where do we follow? The last... Um, gathering of the Bedin HaGadol, known as the Sanhedrin, which was technically the Babylonian rabbis of the Talmud, and that's what we should follow. Right? So this is another argument why Maimonides would be the best um, legal approach to follow. And from a philosophical perspective as well, um, I, I don't have to dwell on this too much because you don't have to follow any philosophy. One can, if you follow the laws of the Torah and you're a monotheist, you're fine. We don't need you to ascribe to every chapter of the guide. But if you look for philosophical guidance as a way of life, the guide to the perplexed 
is definitely one of the most influential philosophical works of all time. Non-Jews love the guy to the perplexed. Christian theologians quote it all the time. Um, Muslim, um, uh, uh, Muslim anti-Semites who in Islamic universities will write their thesis on the guide and refer to Maimonides with respect because of it. So, and obviously Jews forever have been, have, you know, been inspired by the guide. So, I mean, and, and just the very idea of pure monotheism, of the Torah having deeper literary levels of, of, of uh, understanding that dig into the psychology of the person and the psychology of the nation, and the fact that all of the commandments have deep wisdom behind them that inform our actions. These ideas are part of and parcel of Judaism anyway. There's no reason not to follow them. And not to mention Maimonides' absolute abhorrence of superstition, of um, idolatry, of worship, of the concept of, of worshiping a person or, or uh, um, having a cult of personality. These are things that have been plaguing the Jewish nation since before Maimonides until today. And everything he warned about of us becoming a pagan society of uh, of uh, superstitious people who 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 just follow the, the you know, follow the the herd and just do things because they're told by you know these heroic figures who don't get questioned. I mean, he's warned about this in his works. He spoke about how damaging it is and how against the Torah it is, and he was a hundred percent right. I mean, all of these things are things that we should not have a problem following, and all fits in together with the biblical idea of mosaic monotheism, of following only one God and not, um, you know, not being not being led astray by idolatry. So, I mean, these are the arguments, and in a, as organized fashion as one can do in a basic podcast. Um, I hope you find this useful. In the next part of this podcast, I'm going to um, address the issue which often comes at this point, which is how come nobody of note today, no great rabbis um, preach this? How come this is something that only, you know, maybe quacks on the internet seem to be saying, but you don't see this as a common opinion, common position? How come there are no communities doing this? What could be done to change it? Those are legitimate questions that need to be addressed, and they will be addressed further in part two of this podcast. Thank you for listening.